Hello and welcome to this Endo Life. I'm Jessica Duffin. I'm an Endo Warrior and Endo Health Coach, and this podcast is all about living and thriving with endometriosis. As always, this podcast is here for educational purposes only. Please consult your medical practitioner before making any nutritional changes or bringing in any supplements. Before we dive into today's episode, I want to give a shout out to my lovely sponsors at BU. And I wanted to tell you about their new bath bombs, which are naturally made and contain beautiful essential oils. And their peppermint and eucalyptus essential oils um, bath bomb is doing so well right now with endometriosis community. They're getting loads of feedback about it. And, you know, if you love the patches themselves you're going to love the bath bombs because essentially it's (laughs) the patch in a bath bomb um so you know if you're on your period or if you're in pain you could have a bath with some of the bath bombs or one of them i don't know you could have multiple if you want um and then yeah get out the bath maybe rub in some cbd balm and put your patch on top, which is um, what a lot of people are feeding back that they're doing. So um, I would love to do that, but um, I don't have a bath, so I can't. But if you have a bath, um, then, you know, I think these new bath bombs could be a lovely way to help alleviate some of your pain. So if you'd like to check them out, you can go to BU, which is buonline.co.uk, And you can also order them from anywhere in the world on cultbeauty.co.uk and they deliver worldwide. So before we dive into today's episode, I wanted to give a shout out to the lovely girls at Semaine. They are two sisters with endometriosis. They've been on the show before and they founded Semaine, which is a supplement company for people with periods to originally their first supplement was to aid with PMS and period pain. And I know that it is a lifesaver for so many people with endometriosis and painful periods. I absolutely love that supplement. It's really helped me when I've had to kind of follow protocols for SIBO or, you know, I've had a stressful time and I've been worried about my period. I've been able to avoid a flare with that supplement and they've always been so kind and um, kindly sent me sent me them when I when I've needed them. And now they've come out with a new supplement called the Daily, and it is a hormone balancing supplement, which is designed to help with healthy skin, stable mood, fewer cravings in your luteal phase, blood sugar balance. And they recently gifted it to me. Honestly, I said this to my client the other day. My blood sugar levels have never felt so stable as they did when I was taking that day, daily supplement. As you guys know, I I work very hard to stabilize my blood sugar levels because that will keep inflammation down and it also ensures that you have healthy balanced hormones. It's, it's really, really key. And I have a history of having really unstable blood sugar. Originally growing up, it was because of my eating disorder. But then in later years, it was much more down to firstly following a vegan diet when I didn't understand how to build my plate, a healthy blood sugar balancing plate. And secondly, because of my microbiome and my microbiome because of SIBO is built to actually extract more glucose from my food and cause blood sugar instability. This is actually a really key piece of blood sugar. If your blood sugar is resisting all of the strategies you're trying, that is a massive clue that your microbiome is affecting the way that your blood sugar is is being controlled in your body. So we need to work on that, work on your gut. And mine has improved mine has improved massively, but I still react much more um erratically than someone else would to blood sugar fluctuations. And I couldn't believe the difference. It was like I had a whole month of like stable blood sugar. It was incredible. And as a result, I had much more of a healthier cycle. I felt a lot more satisfied. I had less food cravings. I just felt a lot more stable in energy. So I'm a really big fan of this. And as I said, 
blood sugar is a huge piece to manage in your hormones, hence why blood sugar is such a big part of their, their supplement. So the girls have kindly given me a discount code for you guys. It will get you 20% off your first um, order, whether that's the daily or the PMS and period support capsules. And the code is ENDOLIFE, one word, all caps. So E-N-D-O-L-I-F-E. And that code is valid for the next six months, I believe. So you can use it at any time. Um, So let me know how you get on with them. I'd love to hear if you find them as amazing as I did. And I hope that they bring you a happier and healthier cycle and period. So on today's episode, I'm interviewing Aaron Nicole, who you may know better as Moonly on Instagram. Aaron is a functional hormone and endometriosis nutritionist with a particular interest in working with women and uterus owners who deal with hormone and inflammatory issues such as endo, fibroids, period pain, mood swings, PCOS, and more. Her aim is to heal the root cause of people's symptoms through holistic nutrition, and we're a big fan of that here. So I'm all for Aaron's approach. Aaron has both endometriosis and fibroids and is now in a place where her two conditions are really well managed and no longer cause her symptoms. And I invited her on to talk specifically about fibroids, given that in the US right now, July is Fibroids Awareness Month, and we actually haven't really covered fibroids on the show. So in this discussion, we talk about what fibroids actually are, the association between endometriosis and fibroids, the signs and symptoms of fibroids, how someone could get diagnosed with fibroids, what causes fibroids, and the conventional treatment options versus Aaron's holistic approach to managing them. So I just wanted to make you aware that we do talk about dietary changes in this episode, in particular lowering alcohol consumption, which we talk about for quite a bit. This comes up when I ask Erin about her approach to managing fibroids, so feel free to skip this section if it's particularly triggering for you. Though I will say that we discuss this in a really balanced and realistic approach. We're not telling people to stop drinking alcohol, go teetotal, etc. Um, we're just having a kind of open conversation. But if you find dietary changes triggering, you can skip this bit and just skip to the end where we talk about how to work with Erin. Okay, so without further ado, let's get to the show. Aaron, thank you so much for coming on the show. We're here. It's taken us a while, but we finally got here. Um, So if you're comfortable for anyone who isn't, you know, aware of your work, I'd love to kick off with your story and who you are and what you do. Yeah, no, thanks so much for having me. We've been trying to schedule this for over a year. So this is good that we finally got here. (laughs) So thank you for having me. Uh, I really appreciate it. So my name's Erin Nicole. You guys might know me on social media as Moonly or I am Moonly. Um, I feel like no one actually knows my name, but <laughs> essentially... I did think you were called Moonly yeah, for like years. Yeah, no one knows my name. I'm like, hey, Moonly. Hey, <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> it's just I'm embodying it. <laughs> um, and essentially, I am a functional nutritional therapy practitioner, which is a fancy name for a nutritionist. And I work with people who are dealing with hormone issues, but also endometriosis, because I also have endometriosis and fibroids. And so I was actually diagnosed, I believe probably four years ago now. Um, I had been suffering from excruciating period pain since I was 10 years old. And I went on birth control when I was about 11 years old. Cause my doctor was just like, she just is unlucky. Um, there's really nothing else we can do. She can either get pregnant or go on birth control. Like that's right. Yeah, I know. (laughs) 11 years old. Um, and it's so interesting because when I think back to that experience, when my mom finally took me to the doctor, she, I remember her asking the doctor, could this be endometriosis? Because, um, my aunt, her younger sister was actually diagnosed with stage four endometriosis. So yeah, I found it interesting that my mom mentioned doctor was just like, nope, couldn't be that. It's like, okay, I know, seriously, like I could have gotten a diagnosis so much earlier, but the doctor just dismissed it. And so like most people, I would say my periods definitely got better because on birth control, you don't have periods. But um, now that I look back and now what I know about endometriosis being an inflammatory condition throughout high school and college, I was constantly inflamed. I was on 
painkillers, anti-inflammatories, um, getting steroid injections in my back and hips for a variety of pain and legs going numb for just years and years. And I kind of just accepted I'd forever be in pain because I had all these orthopedic surgery surgeries done for them trying to figure out, you know, why is her back in pain? Like why is the nerve communication between her sacrum to her, to her left ankle not working anymore. And they kind of were just like, well, she just needs surgery. And then they did the surgery and nothing really got better. So I kind of just accepted that would be my reality. Um, and it wasn't until I guess four years ago when I moved, I was living in the U S and I was moving back to Australia. And at the time I, before that I was in anti-human trafficking work and I actually decided to take a break from it just from my own, childhood sexual abuse and dealing with my own PTSD. I just couldn't deal with that at the time anymore. And it was actually my mom who introduced me to the topic of period poverty, which is something I never knew about. And in, I feel like the UK kind of leads in the discussion of period poverty, to be honest. And so I was oh, like, wow, we don't need him much. So that's, no. <laughs> that's yeah. a good thing. <laughs> yeah. You guys lead when it comes to discussion of period poverty, because that's where all the research current, well, the US is getting better, but UK definitely hit it over the head first. Um, and I, once I started to learn about that, I realized like, wow, like I didn't realize that there were people out there that dealt with this in developed, um, countries. And as I started to learn more, I was like, huh, I wonder like, why do we even have periods? Like, what's the purpose? And then I realized I had shut off my period for 13 years. So I didn't really know much about it at all. But once mm-hmm. I started learning more about the menstrual cycle and the side effects of hormonal birth control. And then once I learned that hormonal birth control didn't actually fix my period pain and that it really just covered it up. That's kind of where I was like, I want to dig. And so I came off birth control and obviously I was sexually active at the time as well. So I decided to learn how to chart my cycle using the symptothermal method. And it was actually the book taking charge of your fertility by Tony Weschler, where there was a page on endometriosis. It was like one super simple page was just like a list of symptoms. And I remember sitting there and just check marking every symptom. I was like, Oh my God, this is me. <laughs> and, yeah. and luckily with Instagram, I got on Instagram and just typed in endo, like in the tag section. And I saw one post that said endo and leg pain. And I was like, Holy crap. Mm-hmm. I have like for years and years since I was young, I had always asked my friends and aunts and swim coaches and everything. I'm like, do you guys feel like you can't walk? Like I was like, cause when people would talk about their period pain, they'd be like, my stomach hurts, my back hurts, but I never had that. Mine was always this aching pain that would radiate from my hip down the outside of my leg to my knee. And I wouldn't be able to walk, or I would get this um, lightning pain through my vagina and no one could ever relate to me. And so when I finally saw that post of like endo and leg pain, I was like, that's it. Like, that's what I've been experiencing this whole time. And after that, I decided like I was ready to get a proper diagnosis to kind of know where to go next. Cause I was like, I've always wanted to be a mom. I also want to be out of pain. So it was a really big deal for me to get the diagnosis. So I ended up booking two doctor's appointments um, back in the United States because in Australia, I wasn't a resident yet. So I didn't have any like proper insurance to cover for that surgery. And I flew back home. The first doctor told me just to get back on birth control. And if it was endo, I shouldn't worry about it till I want kids. So that was great. I know (laughs) that was great. Um, And then I went to another doctor who believed like an hour later, who believed everything I said. And she was like, if it's not endo, what else would it be? And I was like, thank you. (laughs) Like I just, it took 13 years for a doctor to believe me. And when she went in, she found, um, I think she found like two very small cysts, four really small fibroids and stage two endo. So like mm-hmm. that was amazing. Cause after that surgery, like, like I said, I had been dealing with back pain and hip pain and all of these issues for so, so long after that surgery, after a week and a half of recovery, it was the best I'd ever felt since I was probably like eight years old. I was like, I can touch oh my, my toes God. again. My back doesn't hurt. My legs aren't going numb. Like it was just this one thing that my mom had mentioned when I was 11 years old that no one ever thought to look into until I was 23. And that was what was causing me so many issues. I mean, it's just so, it's more than frustrating. And it's, it's just devastating really that you had the answer instinctively had the answer so many years ago, but you had to go through all of that. Um, just because the, the medical system puts these barriers up and it's just, and some of it's just really down to pride and ignorance. Like often I find that 
my clients will say like, oh, I suggested this thing, but like the doctor's really got their back up again about it. And it's almost like if a patient has an idea of what might be going on, it's like the doctors find it offensive. Like, who do you think you are? Like (laughs) acting like you know your body. I'm the one who trained. Exactly. And they're also like, well, you just Googled it. And I was like, well, mm-hmm. Google's giving me more options than you are. <laughs> Gives me some type of answer. And honestly, I feel like yeah. that's where so many of us would end up, end up. We end up just Googling everything. We're like, we can see the symptoms here. Why is it so hard to go out and get a diagnosis? Like, why is that so hard? Um, and yeah, so essentially after I had that surgery, I was the best I'd ever felt like. I mean, my, I could touch my toes again. I like my back didn't feel like it was going to snap in half. I felt amazing. Um, and I, and then I think about four or five months in after surgery, because I will say that my doctor did ablation and excision. She did tell me that's what Mm -hmm. she did. So after Mm -hmm. about five months, my pain did start to come back and I wasn't ready to go back into surgery. I didn't want to go back with hormonal birth control. So I decided to deep dive into nutrition and like acupuncture, more of the holistic side of endo after finding a book that was actually a British, um, British published book of women from 1980s and 1990s that had endo, they had done, you know, the Lupron, they had done all the surgeries and they were kind of just mm-hmm. done. And they decided to seek those more holistic routes. And that's when they started to notice different. So basically I bought that book. I looked at what every single one of them did. They basically all followed the same blueprint and I did the exact same thing. And that's actually when I created my account Moodly, which originally was kind of just a blog of me putting on there what was working for me. But also I think I wanted to give back, especially for those people that helped me, like the person, I can't even remember who posted about endo and leg pain, but that was really like the tipping point. And without them having created that Instagram account to raise awareness about that, I don't know if I would have gone out to advocate for myself. So that's kind of where Moonly originally started. And then over time, as I started to really notice the difference in my symptoms, people started asking, okay, like, you know, what are you doing? Like, I, I need to do that. And I kind of realized, okay, I need to make sure that I know what I'm talking about. Like, I know it's worked for me, but I need to see if there's actually any science to it. So that's when I went out and um, actually got a certification in it so that I could actually help other people with endo, period, pain, fibroids, and all of that. Sorry, that was a long explanation. No, it's awesome. I mean, (laughs) our story is actually so similar. So it's, I mean, we keep coming up against similarities. So um, that's so funny because I was even in... um, not exactly the same but similar so I worked with homeless young people um and then I kind of went out of that world because it was too emotionally difficult for me um and then went on to do this um so yeah so many similarities yeah so (laughs) you mentioned that you had fibroids found um and we haven't really covered fibroids in depth on this show so For anyone who isn't aware, could you tell us what fibroids are? Yeah. So I think fibroids is one of those scary things because you get the diagnosis and then you're like, oh my God, what do I do with this? Um, So fibroids, first off, I want to say that fibroids are very, very common. I believe they have found that 80% of women worldwide will at least have one fibroid in their lifetime. Um, And essentially a fibroid is a benign growth that happens in the uterus. It can grow in different parts and it can grow to a range of different sizes. So you could have a fibroid the size of a cherry, or you could have a fibroid that grows the size of a grapefruit, where some people actually might look eight or nine months pregnant due to the size of the fibroid. Majority of the time they are benign though. Um, And I think oftentimes people get a bit nervous about that cancerous factor because really like you hear the word tumor and you're like, holy crap. (laughs) But most of the time they are benign, but they can grow quite large and they can cause issues um, depending on where they're growing and the size of them. And so they're just, they're just tissue. It's not like they're a cyst. Yeah. It's just tissue and it builds Mm -hmm. up and it can just grow to that really enormous size. Typically when people notice problems, like for me, I have four very, very small fibroids. Um, honestly, if like this was video, I could show you, um, when they went in for my laparoscopic, my surgeon took a picture of one that was poking up. She's like, there's your little fibroid. (laughs) And essentially with they can grow different sizes, but there have been a lot of people who have been able to shrink them depending on where they're growing. You can actually pass some, um, depending obviously on the size and where they're growing in your uterus, but they are just tissue that builds up and um, can cause some people some issues. So um, is there an association between endometriosis and fibroids? Because we know that fibroids are common. Um, 
but are there any stats on endo and fibroids? You know, I actually did look this up before this because oftentimes <laughs> most of the people I do work with do typically have fibroids, but I was curious how common it was. So in the research, they have found only around 20% of people, this might be switched. I'm not going to say verbatim, but 20% of people with fibroids have endometriosis and 26% of people with endometriosis have fibroids. So the percentage actually isn't as big as I thought it would have been. Have you found mm-hmm. that in your line of work, a lot of people have fibroids? No. See, this mm-hmm. is what I was interested in because they're both, I mean, we're going to get into this, but um, there are many things that contribute to endometriosis yeah. growth, but obviously estrogen is a big fertilizer of it. And it's yeah. the same with fibroids. So I thought there would be more of a link but I don't see fibroids a lot I actually have um just thinking I think maybe I had one client with fibroids um but my friend one of my best friends she's just recently been diagnosed with deep infiltrating endo um and she's got significant fibroids but she's like the only person that I know personally other than a client many years ago who has both endo and fibroids so um really interesting i i see pcos um but the thing that i see the most is SIBO. yeah which obviously isn't a hormonal condition it's a gut condition but that's what i see in nearly every single client i see SIBO. Mm, absolutely i think you're you're like i know you have your SIBO course because exactly that's like i feel like when it comes to SIBO, and i try to explain to people they're like but so did SIBO cause my endo i'm like no 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 there's an association (laughs) it didn't cause your endo but also if you can start to get a handle on the SIBO, it's going to make a massive difference in your symptoms. Um, but I will say, yeah, it's interesting with the fibroids because like you were saying with the endometriosis, because like, like there is a link to estrogen, they have found that with endometriosis and most of the time fibroids is due to high estrogen levels in the body. Um, but it's interesting because most based on the research, at least the most up-to-date research, there aren't that many cases of fibroids across endo. So I would say there doesn't seem to be a strong correlation, but it can be very common because I did have one client who had, I think she had stage four endo and like 26 fibroids. <gasps> yeah. 26, Jesus. I know. Yeah. And I believe she also had adenomyosis as well. So mm-hmm. yeah, it does seem like for some people, but does I like you said the PCOS is a big one as well. Yeah. Okay. So what are the so you know, it's about a quarter of people with endo might have fibroids. Mm-hmm. So what are the signs and symptoms that people should be looking out for? Because I imagine that the symptoms can look quite similar. Yes, they can. (laughs) They can look very, very similar. That's why it can be so hard for people to figure out what it could be. Um, So some of the biggest signs and symptoms that you can look for are those similar to endo. So pain with intercourse, heavy, heavy bleeding um, that can also be associated with endo, painful periods. um, One of the, and you can also have kind of like leg pain, back pain, hip pain, depending on how big the fibroid has grown and where it's pushing on, um, things such as constipation as well. So if you have an endometriosis, like, sorry, not endometriosis, if you have a fibroid that's growing towards the bowel and pushing in on a certain section that can cause constipation. So it's very, very similar. Unfortunately, that's why it can be really confusing for people to figure out which one is it. Um, but the lucky thing about when it comes to fibroids is they can pick them up on internal pelvic ultrasounds. So that's the one benefit is at least that's something they can pick up without having to do such an invasive surgery like endo. Um, and when it comes to fibroids as well, the biggest thing that people can look out for is whether or not your stomach is expanding for no reason. Like it's not a bloating type of thing, but you might notice like these sharp pains in certain areas, which I know can be hard because if you have endo as well, you'll probably have that. Mm. But if you notice that your stomach is especially expanding um, and it's staying expanded, that can be a sign of a fibroid because they can grow to the size of grapefruit. My mom's grew to the size of grapefruit. I'm sure it's the same for my aunt. Um, I know there's been cases of people getting to like the size of a small watermelon as well. So they can get quite big. And that's usually the distinct factor that like, Hey, that fibroid is getting quite large. And if you're noticing that you're bleeding for a long extended period of time, that can be a sign of a fibroid as well. Cause there can be some people who are bleeding for 60, 90 days. And that's where having the fibroid can become a major problem. Mm, Okay. So that's, I mean, 
obviously we just mentioned that SIBO is a really big issue in our community. So for anyone who's having bloating from SIBO, what I would say is unless you have a severe case of SIBO, your SIBO is usually going to correlate with when you eat and it will usually get worse as the day goes on the bloating right what the the endo belly which I tend to say is not just the endo belly for the (laughs) most part um it's usually getting worse as the day goes on um although I do have severe cases where people are just bloated all the time they wake up bloated um But typically it will get worse every time you eat and it will be really bad by the time you're going to bed. Whereas with the fibroids piece, if the fibroid is growing, I'm assuming that it's almost just expanding as if you're like, Mm. you know, pregnant, right? It's just getting worse over the, it's it's not fluctuating. No, it's almost like a pregnancy because essentially it's growing inside your uterus. And when you push on it, it's a bit harder as well, which I think overlaps with SIBO too. Um, yeah. yeah, like you said, like SIBO usually gets worse throughout the day, a fibroid expanding and it's almost like pregnancy, which is also hard with SIBO because SIBO can make you look pregnant as well. But mm. yeah. <laughs> what about, um, clots? Because I don't have fibroids, um, mm. thankfully. Um, but, and I've never had a heavy period. Um, so, but I see a lot of people talking about, you know, when people are sharing their personal experiences that they pass very excessive Mm. clots. Um, Has that been your experience? Is that something you see with your fibroid clients? Shockingly, it's not something I've seen with my clients, but it's something I've had in my own experience. I used to have massive blood clots and I never knew if it was more of an endometriosis association or fibroid association. Um, Mm. But blood clots is also a really big one. So thanks for bringing that up. That is another huge sign of fibroid, especially if they're getting, you know, like there's usually, I guess everyone's in a different currency. (laughs) <laughs> like the size of a US quarter. And as they start to get larger and you can feel it passing, um, that's usually a sign of like, hey, there's some big blood clots in there. It's worth getting checked out. But usually when you're mm-hmm. noticing that heavy, painful blood clot, like in their dark clots as well, that's when you start to notice people are might have a sign of a fibroid. And the thing is kind of like with um, endometriosis, just because this person has the large stomach, but doesn't have, you know, the heavy bleeding, the blood clots doesn't mean they don't have a fibroid. And just because you have um, a heavy period with blood clots and pain or constipation, doesn't mean that your fibroid isn't causing issues. It might just be smaller. It just, the sizes can vary, vary so much and they can determine the different um, symptoms. Like for example, my mom had the grapefruit size fibroid, but her only, her symptoms didn't start till after she was pregnant with me. So she had the fibroid for years and years, and it only just took off when I was growing in her stomach, which I find interesting. Um, but when mm. I was growing in her stomach, that's when it took off. And it wasn't until after I was born that she just wouldn't stop bleeding. Like it just wouldn't stop. And it just kept growing and growing. And that's when they had to take it out. Okay. So, I mean, I wonder if that's to do with the elevated hormone levels, mm. right? During yeah. pregnancy, it's just kind of getting this sustained fertilizer um so it sounds like you know s- symptoms can look similar to endo to SIBO um and you might not have all of the symptoms so what's the best way to get diagnosed and is there like a barrier to diagnosis like there is with endo I personally think fibroids are much easier because you can just do the um there's a formal term for it, but internal pelvic ultrasound. So when you go to your gynecologist and they put the wand in your vagina and they're able to actually see what's going on with the uterus, that is the one benefit to fibroids. Cause you know, with endometriosis, they can do that and get nothing from it. They're like, okay, well, I didn't see anything, but fibroids, I do think are a lot easier to get a diagnosis. I also think that's why the stat for it is so much higher. Like they've said, 80% of women in their lifetime will get a fibroid. I think that's because the procedure to get it diagnosed is so much quicker, so much easier. It's not as invasive. Right. Yeah. I think yeah. that's why I'm, cause, cause obviously we probably both think that the endostat is a lot higher than what it says, but it's because mm-hmm. it's so hard to get access to the laparoscopic surgery and to meet with a proper surgeon who actually knows how to diagnose it. Um, so I think fibroids is a lot easier to get diagnosed, um, from my experience and from working with clients. Yeah. Okay. That's so interesting about, yeah, it's just a kind of more accurate stat because we can get diagnosed more easily. 
Um, so let's dive into like the science. Do we know what causes fibroids? Mm. So we don't know what formally causes fibroids, but we do know that there is a correlation to higher estrogen levels in the body. Um, like we were talking about earlier. So that excess estrogen seems to be something they notice across the board. And I've don't I actually haven't looked into the Black British community, but in the United States, African American are four times more likely to suffer from fibroids, and they're usually yeah. more likely to suffer from um, what's the right wording? Like progressive fibroids um, in our community, okay. they're more likely to cause us more issues, and that's why we have such a high hysterectomy rate as well. I believe um, the number two reason for the hysterectomies in the United States is for fibroids unfortunately. And it, from the, from my research, they usually say there's a genetic factor, which obviously we know that certain types of genetics can affect our ability to metabolize estrogen. Um, mm -hmm. but then also that excess estrogen factor and what the other correlations they have found is that during times of stress, it seems to be also a correlation to when people develop fibroids. So they may have never had fibroids at all. And then they go through this stressful event in their life. And that is when fibroids tend to appear. So that could be, you know, the lower immune system, the higher cortisol levels affecting the HPA axis, which we know is going to affect the estrogen and progesterone balance, which could cause mm -hmm. that growth as well. So there's definitely needs to be more research on it and I hope that they continue on it, but based from a general understanding, most people align it with that higher estrogen levels. And typically when, from a nutrition perspective, when you focus on supporting the HPA axis and the estrogen levels, that's where you start to notice the symptoms improve tremendously. Okay. So with the research, is it um, literal like excess estrogen or is it more like an estrogen dominant scenario where progesterone is low, even if estrogen is at a normal level? Mm. I've seen both, but typically the excess estrogen factor. Okay. Yeah. Typically okay. the excess estrogen is usually what I've noticed um, across my research. But again, research is constantly updating, which I'm super grateful for. <laughs> I'm glad that mm -hmm. research is constantly catching up, but I would say excess estrogen is usually what I noticed, but obviously estrogen dominance is super common as well. And how mm -hmm. much of that has been researched when it comes to this, maybe not as much, but I would say excess estrogen and estrogen dominance would definitely play a big role. Yeah. Okay. That's so interesting. Mm. So, I mean, we're going to get into your approach, um, but do you typically test, like do a Dutch test or even just a standard serum test with your um, clients to check their estrogen when mm. you get a fibroid client? Yeah. So unfortunately I am not trained in the Dutch test yet. I hope to one day, but I'm actually not trained to interpret the test. So typically mm. what I do is I like if I can, um, a lot of my clients do already chart their cycle and through charting their cycle through the symptothermal method, I can get a general idea of what their hormones might be doing. Obviously yeah. it's not perfect. It's not perfect in any way, but it can give me a general idea of, okay, what's their follicular phase? What's their um, luteal phase? And that can kind of lead me on to the next steps. But I wish I had access to the Dutch test because it is such a helpful test. Um, but I do have access to the gut health testing through the GI soul map and the HTMA testing, the hair tissue mineral analysis, which can kind of help us pinpoint whether or not there is excess estrogen. But obviously the Dutch test is the most accurate <laughs> test out there. Yeah. And to be honest, like I don't really feel like the Dutch test is expensive. So mm. if a client can afford it, amazing. But um it's quite clear when someone has like excess, excess mm. estrogen or um, estrogen dominance, like the symptoms are usually pretty obvious. Yeah. Um, you know, they have more PMS, they have uh, sore breasts, they might have some acne, they might have clots on their period. Like it's normally quite obvious. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's normally quite clear and it's normally quite clear if their progesterone is low too. Mm. Um, so most of my clients can't afford to do a Dutch test. So typically we just go through the, the strategies to, you know, optimize their hormones. Mm -hmm. And most of the time those symptoms will resolve. Um, and obviously the Dutch test shows how well the liver is detoxifying mm -hmm. estrogen and things, or, you know, the correct term is, um, metabolizing, but, um, I feel like detox is such a 
like easier term to, <laughs> to understand. Um, but we know from the research that many people with endometriosis do have like genetic issues that affect their estrogen metabolism. So how much, when it's like 400, 500 pounds a test, I'm not sure. Um, we're going to optimize the liver anyway, right? We're going <laughs> to optimize all of these functions anyway. So in an ideal world, sure, I'd love us all to be able to afford a Dutch test, but mm. I don't think that if anyone's listening, like it's not the end of the world if you don't have a Dutch test. Most of the time, these things are clear anyway. And to be, um, on, to be honest, when fine. it comes to the Dutch test as well, I think I think my frustration with the Dutch test, it is the most accurate, don't be wrong, it's the most accurate, but... Typically, if your hormones are showing out of balance, that's because there's something else going on. So it leads you back to something else anyway. So like if you have iHestrogen, okay, can we look at your gut health? What's going on? Do you have candida? Do you have SIBO? High beta glucuronidase levels. So it kind of still leads you back to something else. And so it's kind of the type of test where when I talk to most functional medical doctors, they're like, yes, it's great, but it's not really necessary, especially not in the beginning. It's more something if you want at the end, because we notice after we've done all the work and we're still seeing symptoms, then maybe we go on to test it, but it's usually at the very end. And most people, I feel like most functional medical doctors don't even end up going on to it because it's not even necessary, like you said. Mm, yeah, yeah. It's definitely helpful if like you're scratching your head like, okay, well, we've done a lot of stuff mm. and things aren't, things yeah. aren't changing. Just a reminder that this episode is sponsored by BU. These natural patches last for 12 hours, so they bring you prolonged relief and can begin working on relaxing your muscles before the pain kicks in, so you're prepared even if your period comes during the middle of the day. Some people even find that wearing them a night before their period can really help soothe the inflammation in the area. To shop, just head to the link in my show notes. Okay, so what would the typical conventional medicine model be for treatment of fibroids? Yeah, so unfortunately, the most common is um, hysterectomy. So that's the most common route that people don't go. Even when I went to my doctors, they're like, well, you have four small fibroids. I was like, okay, well, what should I do? They're like, well, the only option is a hysterectomy. So I just wouldn't do anything at this point. Um, even though they're small, even though they're small. Yeah. That's why they were like, we just won't touch them because they're small. They're not affecting you. And if you go to any other doctor, they're just going to want to do a hysterectomy. Like I said, it's one of the, what is it? Number two for hysterect reasons for hysterectomy in the United States. So that is the most conventional. And obviously there are circumstances where a hysterectomy might be a good option, especially if you've been bleeding for, you know, a hundred days and your iron levels are pretty much depleted. Like obviously there's sometimes where it's that life circumstance of, okay, you're on a life or death table. You got to pick which one. Um, mm-hmm. but when it comes to the conventional, typically it's hysterectomy. I do know that they are developing so many more surgeries because there are a few common surgeries out there. And this is where people need to be a bit picky about what doctors you go to because there are a lot of botched surgeries. So there's a lot of surgeries out there for fibroids. We're like, sure, they'll remove the fibroids, but most likely if you haven't addressed the root cause to why you're getting the fibroids, which is typically there's a high estrogen, excess estrogen, estrogen dominant factor to that. Um, they're going to come right back. And then you're going to see yourself needing to get surgery again. And Mm -hmm. with that many surgeries, like we know, come scar tissue. And scar tissue causes a whole host of issues. I can't remember her name right now, but there's um, another woman. She's kind of like the queen for fibroids. And she has lost so many of her intestines because of how many (gasps) fibroid surgeries she had gone through and the scar tissue just destroyed it. They've had to remove so like her, her intestines are so short now. Like, obviously I don't know if anyone knows, but the intestines are very, very long. And because of the amount of surgeries that she went through with all the scar tissue and the growing back, she has lost so much. And I've seen so many stories like this. So when you're Mm -hmm. looking for a surgery, the most, the best one that I have seen so far, and the research is constantly updating is, um, it's called the uterine fibroid 
embolization, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. And essentially with this, instead of them going in and actually cutting at your uterus, because the thing with fibroids, they can grow in different spots in your uterus. Like they can grow on the outer muscular layer, the inner one. Um, There's like several different areas that it can grow on. Some can grow almost like a branch off of the uterus. This one actually, yeah, I know. (laughs) This one actually focuses on cutting off the blood supply to the specific fibroid. So how this works, I haven't done the research because I haven't looked too closely into it, but based on the functional medical doctors that I follow from my understanding, it seems to be one of the more successful ones because it stops the blood flow from going to them. So over time, they should start to shrink and they definitely wouldn't be growing because they wouldn't have the blood supply to grow anymore. Um, but mm. when it comes to the number one is hysterectomy, but if you're looking at those alternative options for surgery, cause sometimes you might get to that point, I would recommend looking at uterine fibroid embolization. Cause I've heard some really great things about it. Okay. That's great. And, um, I'll put that in the show notes. Um, if you could just shoot me over the name, yeah. because I'm certainly going to botch that if I try to <laughs> okay. write it out. Um, and I mean, the, the adhesions piece is such a, um, good point and, um, it's something that I see and I I talk about all the time because surgeons don't talk about the adhesion risk. And the research shows us that 50 to hundred percent of people who have abdominal surgery will develop adhesions. And if it's a surgery where, you know, it's not keyhole, it's like a a full excision. I don't know what the word is like a, you know, a big excision, (laughs) um, an incision rather, um, then you're looking at 80 to 100%. So if someone has like an extensive surgery, abdominal surgery, I mean, you've got almost 100% chance of developing the adhesions. Um, Then if you're having repeated adhesions, if even if you're having keyhole, uh, if you're having repeated surgeries with keyhole, like that chance is going to grow. So um, I see adhesions as being such a big problem and it ends up creating a... uh, kind of a vicious cycle with SIBO because people end up Mm. developing, if they didn't have SIBO, they end up developing it because these adhesions start affecting the gut, the intestines, the motility, they develop SIBO or if it was there already, it's worse. And then they end up thinking it's endo. They're like, oh, my endo bell is back. They have another surgery and it's not the endo and it just continues the problem. So I really emphasize like a pre and post surgery protocol to prevent mm-hmm. adhesions or at least um, kind of you can't necessarily stop them from starting, but actually just breaking them down before they take too much root in your body, because it's such a huge problem that I just wish the risk was talked about when we're going for like our pre-op appointments and things. Yeah, absolutely. And even like the SIBO factor, like you're talking about, it wasn't because I think when you first figure out endo on social media, you see the endo belly, but you don't often easily find the connection to SIBO which I think Mm. is so frustrating because you're sitting here like, okay, well, like my endo belly is going to get better after surgery. And like, I'm pretty sure mine did it. (laughs) No, yeah, no, it doesn't. (laughs) Like, no, I haven't, I haven't had one person come to me and say like, oh yeah, my endo belly went away after surgery. And I'm sure there are people listening who are like, well, mine did great. You probably didn't have SIBO. Mm. Like it probably was the inflammation and the, you know, the size Mm. of your endometrium or your growths, but a lot, Obviously, I see a certain demographic of people, but a lot of the time it's gut dysbiosis, Mm. SIBO, like candida, certain things that um, are going on in the gut and then messing up the intestines with adhesions make it worse. Yeah. And I honestly didn't, yeah, I didn't notice the SIBO because even at first when I was guessing my gut health, because I had no idea what I was doing when I first started, this is why I documented on my blog. Um, <laughs> I, I did the candida protocol and that helped a little bit, but it wasn't until so much later that I discovered the SIBO and endo connection. And it's so deeply connected. And I was like, why does no one talk about this? I was like, no wonder. And like now I rarely ever have endo belly and I can, obviously you do this work as well. And you can see like, wow, there is a huge association and no one talks about it. SIBO is still just, I feel like there's not enough awareness about SIBO at all. No. And I mean, the thing is like SIBO was only, gosh, I think it was in 1960s. SIBO was discovered as like a condition that developed as a result of another condition I can't remember what it was called and then 
it was only in the early 2000s that they acknowledged it as a condition on its own that can just develop, you know, can develop outside of this other condition, which I just, I can't remember what the condition was. Um, so the research is still so new mm. and there's really only a handful of doctors around the world who are yeah. specializing in it and researching in it. So a lot of the doctors that if you, certain, you know, doctors, GPs, GI specialists, they'd be like, SIBO doesn't exist. They think it's like, a, they don't, it's we are with SIBO where we were with endometriosis like 10 15 years ago yeah that's a good point it's a good way of putting it pretty much isn't it so there's still there's still a lot to to do but I mean we're talking about it so (laughs) so there we go yeah (laughs) we're we're leading the way um okay so those are the conventional treatment options now I'm super interested about your approach because as I said I don't work with fibroids so I'd love to hear from like a holistic like nutritional point of view um I can imagine what your approach is but yeah I'd love to hear how you work with clients on this yeah it's very um probably you can imagine (laughs) what it would be Oftentimes it, it, it does, some of it does overlap with kind of the endo protocol, but when it comes to dealing with fibroids, the biggest things that I like to focus on first is honestly lifestyle and getting stress under control. Like I said, a lot of the research shows that there seems to be a big correlation between when stressful, stressful events hit fibroids develop. And then as that stress starts to go down, fibroid growth starts to go down. It's a very interesting correlation. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. one of the biggest things I try to focus on, obviously I'm not a licensed therapist or counselor or anything, but focusing on the mindset factor and referring them on to get that extra mental side of things. Because the thing is when we're stressed, we throw our entire body out of balance. That contributes to things like SIBO, high cortisol levels, which is going to affect our blood sugar and everything else that's going on. And as we move forward, that is where we start looking at the nutritional side. So what are your vitamins and minerals? So oftentimes fibroids are associated with low vitamin D levels, but we also know that um, vitamins and minerals have cofactors. So when there's low vitamin D, there's likely low calcium, low magnesium. And that's where we start to look at those vitamin and minerals and how can we figure out one, why are they low in the body? For example, um, I'm African-American from the state of Ohio and it's very far north and a lot of people living in Northern America with Northern northern hemisphere, sorry, <laughs> with darker skin are lower in vitamin D. And that's also where they see the increase in fibroid development. So looking at, mm. is there something that's in the diet that's leading to these extra deficiencies, or is it also the environment that you're living in and looking at how can we start to increase the nutrients that we're, um, nutrients that we can get from our food and supplement where we have to. And then obviously making sure the liver detox pathways are open as much as we can. I usually try to go for that food component first and then later on adding in the necessary supplements temporarily to address that. And then we usually focus on um, making sure that we're kind of reducing those pro-estrogen factors like alcohol, lots of refined sugar. I would say alcohol seems to be the biggest one um, for most people really cutting back on alcohol because it is part of a lot of cultures, it's a part of a lot of societies, but alcohol, it's one of the biggest contributing factors to those high estrogen levels and really taking um, a big toll on our liver and the ability to detox properly. Um, Mm -hmm. And so as we work through that, that's usually where I start to see people have improvements. Once you start focusing on liver, gut health, blood sugar, and increasing those vitamins and minerals, especially vitamin D, calcium, zinc, and magnesium, those seem to already improve the symptoms. And then depending on the individual, especially what else they have going on, we continue to move forward from there. Yeah. I mean, it's so interesting with the alcohol piece because I don't drink. I mean, I, I probably drink like three times a year. Mm. Um, and it's like, sometimes I can't even get through a glass because I just, I don't like the taste or like mm-hmm. I start to have a histamine reaction or I'm just like, Oh yeah, I'm good. I've had a sip now. But, um, I did drink a lot when I was younger. Mm. Um, and interestingly, that's around the time when my endo symptoms showed up. Um, and what I've noticed is that there can be quite a big amount of resistance to reduce an alcohol mm-hmm. intake. Um, not so much with clients because I think by the time someone decides they want to work with me one-to-one they're already like 
they're already quite aware of certain contributing factors, but especially like students on my courses where they might be quite new to this work, there can be resistance around the alcohol piece, um, especially when it's cultural or you're mm. young or um, it's a socially, like it's how, you know, all of your, how you see your friends, your friends go out drinking. Do you come up against that as a barrier? And do you have any tips for people who are like, well, well my friends drink, what do I, what do I do? You know, I, I do come up against this. And to be honest, I would love to know your thoughts as a practitioner as well, because I have been trying to navigate this um, with the clients that really find trouble. Honestly, some of the things that I have tried, which this might be helpful for some people, is if you enjoy like, you know, going out to eat and most of your friends or family has a glass of wine. What I actually found out from one of my clients, what they do, which I thought was quite brilliant, is what they'll do is they just request a... Um, like a mocktail from the bartender that's a surprise they're like surprise me with whatever you got Um, so it's Mm. still like you still get to enjoy that experience without the alcohol component and also just I think it's also about evaluating because oftentimes when I talk to people about drinking it's about well what am I supposed to like what type of fun drink am I supposed to have so it's also trying to figure out why is alcohol considered the fun drink like what about it is actually like what in your mindset considers that the fun drink? Because I'm the same as you. I I don't drink maybe like two glasses of wine a year and I don't finish the glass. It's never been mm-hmm. a huge part of my life. Um, but from my experience, that seems to help people. I think also once people sort of understand more of what alcohol does to the body and how it's contributing to their symptoms over time, they start to realize, okay, I'm feeling better. Because to be honest, I had this one client Um, and her biggest thing was alcohol. We couldn't get it down. I tried everything in the book and it wasn't until our very last appointment together that she finally went a whole month without drinking and her endo pain had improved like by 70%. Wow. (laughs) And I was, I was like, only if we could have figured out how to reduce that sooner. So that's why as a practitioner yourself, I would love to know your advice of how you do that as well. Yeah, I mean, like I said, not many of my one-to-ones have problems with it, but my students can. So it's a little bit less. I mean, I have like weekly calls with my students in a group, so there's less in-depth kind of conversation about it one-on-one. But it really depends on what they're struggling with. If it's that they're struggling with, they're willing to give up alcohol or or reduce it, right? We're not saying you have to go 100% like Mm. teetotal, but if they're willing to reduce it and the problem is the social side of things Mm. um I say first how like how frank a conversation have you had with people about this because often that I find for me talking about endo comes very easily um but not it's it's not that easy a conversation to have for many people and so having this conversation of like and, and sometimes being not forceful, but really direct and really kind of um, highlighting the gravity of the situation, being like, look, if you want to carry on being able to see me out as a friend, you want to be able to see me out the house because I've got the energy and I've got the health to do it. Then I need you to understand that like me drinking and keeping up with the amount that you're drinking is actually detrimental to my health. Like for you, this is just one fun night. For me, I will be sick for the rest of the week. You know, I've got seven days of being unwell after having some drinks. So if I'm choosing to have one drink tonight, the reason why I'm doing it is so that I can continue my life for the rest of the week after this, like whatever it may be, you know, because this is just an example scenario, but someone might be, if that was me, drinking like a lot trying to keep up with people I would be kind of wiped out for like a week so to them it's just a fun night but for me I'd have to like take a week off work right or I'd be in pain for a week or whatever it may be so it's actually kind of trying to let someone know that like to you this is just an immediate circumstance it's just an immediate fun night and Often I would find in the past people were like, oh, come on, we really want you out. We really want to drink with you, blah, blah, blah. And I would notice that they would make this huge thing about how they they love drinking with me and they really, you know, they really wanted this time with me. But then there would be no follow-up the next day. 
So they, were, they wouldn't be checking in with me the next day. And it's like, oh, that's really interesting. Like you really wanted me in my presence in that moment. But the next day you're not thinking about me. Yeah. You knew it was a really big deal, but you're not, you're not checking in with me the next day. So actually it's just like you're in the moment. You only are really thinking about me in the moment, right? And, and that fun, having fun with me in that moment. But the next day you're not, you're not texting me. You're not asking me how I am. So it's really about thinking about, okay, the short-term effects versus the long-term effects. Um, So having this really frank conversation with people and trying to get them to understand that um, even, you know, on a very simple term, the science, like, look, when I drink a lot, it raises estrogen. It burdens my liver and my liver already has problems with filtering out estrogen. It lowers progesterone. Um, so it's essentially, you know, it could be contributing to my symptoms and potentially the growth of the mm-hmm. disease. Um, we're not, we're not here on this podcast saying like alcohol is, is feeding endo, but we're no. saying that all of these factors contribute, right? Mm. They, they can all contribute. So, um, just trying to get people to understand. And then if there is someone that you just can't breach this conversation with, but you're willing not to drink, um, I get a champagne glass and I order it on my own and I ask the wait, uh, the waiter, the bartender to put like sparkling water in it with a load of like curves, like mint and fruit. And it looks like I've got a cocktail or like mm. a Prosecco kind of cocktail thing. And because of the bubbles or the sparkling water, everyone just thinks it's some sort of like, yeah, kind of Prosecco champagne cocktail and no one asks any questions. There you go. And it's just super easy that way. Um, I think that the the biggest challenge is when someone themselves, they they don't want to give up alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's about a conversation of like, well, you don't have to give it up. It's it's about could we reduce, when do you enjoy it the most? Do you enjoy it most when you're out socializing or do you enjoy it most at home on your own? Is there one that we can ease up? Is there, you know, could we take your drinks out from six drinks to four drinks Mm. could we take your evening drinks from two to one just starting kind of there with very like small changes um and then in the beginning what can be helpful is giving the liver and the body some support if you are going to drink okay so you could take some charcoal capsules i use charcoal quite a lot with SIBO um because it traps the, it pulls in the gases. So, you know, could you take a charcoal capsule with the alcohol that's going to absorb some of that alcohol? Um, can you take some supportive like, um, supplements, nutrients, like B vitamins, um, vitamins that are going to support the liver to metabolize that, that, um, alcohol and also like, okay, can you balance your blood sugar with that drink? Because it's going to spike your blood sugar. So can you have that drink with a meal that contains adequate fat and protein and, and fiber and complex carbohydrates to help, you know, slow down the release of glucose to the blood and the effect that it's going to have on um, your hormones. So putting in some supportive factors um, if you are going to drink. So like if you know that you're going to a wedding and you're going to drink, okay, hydrate continue make sure you eat um and take some like supplements to give your body a bit of a boost because we can't necessarily do it all with just food and and lifestyle so sometimes especially in the case of endo or fibroids we might need a little bit of extra an extra help in hand um so those are probably like some of the key strategies that i use no i appreciate you sharing that that's actually really really helpful Um, and I've honestly like really needed to talk to another practitioner about this. So thank you. I actually really appreciate it. Yeah. And I mean, the thing is sometimes people just aren't ready, right? Yeah. And maybe they never will be. Maybe they're like, and I think that you could potentially work on all of the other areas to get the person feeling as well as possible. Yeah. And then they have to make a decision of like, is this well enough for me? Is it, is this what I want from life? I'm well enough to do X, Y, Z and not give up alcohol. Um, and, or I'm not yet where I want to be with my health. So now I'm going to consider reducing my alcohol intake. And again, it doesn't have to be completely removing it. It's about reducing it. So, um, it, it's about kind of like the stages of change, like where, where is someone 
in their journey of what they're ready and willing to change. Um, so it might be that they need to see progress yeah. first with other changes and all before they can believe that alcohol will be having an effect. That's true. Right? And that's, that's another big thing. I like that you raised the point of it's not about getting rid of it. It's about reducing it. Um, and I think this is really important. I try to explain this to many people as possible is yes. When I first started everything inflamed my endo, like, you know, like one cupcake, one glass of wine, but as you start to support those systems on a consistent basis, where like for the most part from nutrition, like from the nutrition perspective, you are supported when you occasionally do go out to have that drink your body has the capability to get back up compared to where it was. Like when you go out to have that, you know, like whatever sweet treat you want with that refined sugar back in the day, it might've inflamed you, but now your body has what it needs to get back up and say, cool, I can handle that. We're good to go because we're supported every other day of the week. (laughs) So it's about getting to that point, isn't it? Absolutely. I completely agree with you. I mean, I've noticed myself, I mean, histamine is a different issue, but, Mm. um, my body is so much more resilient to what I can eat where like sugar before would just kind of cripple me and my period. I I would notice like if I ate some sugar, like at any point during my cycle, I would have like a worse period. Or if it was on my period, I mean, it was game over. You know, I could go from standing to being on the floor in 30 minutes. Whereas now not that I'm suddenly going to be eating like chocolate bars every day of the week, (laughs) but I'm much more resilient to um, certain foods that used to be a huge trigger for me. Um, And also like I try to take a sort of 80, 20% kind of approach roughly where like, look, don't worry about the 20% or don't worry about those one-offs. Like if 80% of your diet has got the foundations that your body needs to thrive you're good right you're doing better than the majority (laughs) of the world so like (laughs) you know you don't need to be a biohacker to manage these conditions you don't have to be like all the way up there with like you know the cleanest eating like gurus in order to see change yeah exactly like honestly my favorite meals is our dessert so I completely Mm -hmm. like I love sugar. I'm not going to lie to you. I love sugar, but I've gotten to my body to a point. And I've also learned how to cook with alternative sugars so that I'm not feeding the inflammation of my endo. and I'm not feeding the inflammation of, you know, my fibroids. And you get to that point, like you said, with the 80, 20, that's exactly, it's just about balancing it. Cause the more you restrict yourself, the more frustrated you're going to get. And it's going to be harder to stick with as well. Yeah, absolutely. You and I are so similar because like desserts, like that's my thing. Like I love desserts. I make my own um, sugar-free ice cream. I make sugar-free cakes. Like, and so it's like, I I don't go like without desserts at the weekend, but most of the time I make my own unless I am too tired or whatever, then I'm like, you know, I'm not really going to go for um, a sugar-free like alternative something that has like sucralose in it right or um malitol or something so I'm like okay like I'm probably better off going with the sugar option here but um I really you know I love using monk fruit or allulose Mm. um so yeah it's so funny we're so similar (laughs) my go-to is maple syrup and honey and then occasionally coconut sugar I don't love it but it can be a good alternative um, but yes, I am pretty much every day like, okay, like what kind of dessert we're we gonna make today? <laughs> like that's the goal of the day. <laughs> so funny. Yeah. I like dream up desserts and like go say to my boyfriend, I'm like, okay, imagine this. Yeah. <laughs> Let's make it. <laughs> yeah, and go yeah. away and make it. Yeah. Um, okay, amazing. So before we wrap up, are there any kind of final tips or suggestions or kind of key takeaways that you would like to share? Yeah, I think when it comes to fibroids, if you're looking to figure out where to get started, I would really first start to look at um, 
what is your basic diet? Like, are you eating plenty of, you know, whole foods? I'm not saying never have refined foods, but are you eating whole foods that are going to benefit to your protein, carbon fats and getting you your vitamins and minerals? And if you are, that's amazing. Um, I would recommend really increasing your cruciferous vegetables like broccoli, Brussels sprouts, um, cauliflower, all of those are going to help with your liver and gallbladder. And I would definitely look at things like your vitamin D and magnesium and calcium to make sure that you're having adequate levels of those and making sure that you're able to absorb those. And lastly, look at your stress levels. I know that can be a big one. And a lot of us are in, um, what did my client call it? Autopilot. Mm. <laughs> stress. So we might've been in a stressful situation for a very long time. And you might not even realize that you are constantly stressed and that's going to contribute as well. So I would say if you're looking to get started on thinking with your five words, that's where I would get started to really start to see a difference. Cause I'm at a point now where I, I have no symptoms of my five words. I don't even know if they're still there. I haven't gotten them checked, but I have no symptoms from them, which is really, really amazing. And I'm really grateful. Okay. If you get them checked, you have to let us know because I will. Be so <laughs> amazing. Imagine if they're gone, that would be mm, awesome. Be really cool. <laughs> so where can uh, everyone find you and work with you? Yeah. Thank you. So Easiest place to probably see a little bit of what I do is find me on Instagram. I haven't figured out TikTok. Don't ask me about TikTok. Yeah, <laughs> I've tried. No, um, you find me on Instagram at I am Moonly, literally just like M O O N L I. And then my website is I am Moonly.com. And that's where you can find out more about my services, my blog, my recipes to kind of help you get started as well. Cause I realized that recipes can be kind of a tough place to start if you're not used to cooking at home and creating more of your own meals. Um, but I do also offer one-on-one um, packages for people who are looking for more of that six month support to get started on really deep diving into the root cause to your symptoms. And that's where we would work virtually together. I also have courses as well for people who more prefer more of that self-paced um, environment to start dealing with their health. So those are some areas of where you can reach out to me. Okay. Amazing. So thank you so much for coming on. It's been so interesting and I've learned a lot. Um, and I've also learned that we're weirdly similar. Um, similar. For everyone who's listening, they're probably like, you're not that similar, but we had a 20 minute conversation beforehand and we're really similar. We are (laughs) very similar and excited to like share all of our resources back and forth. I know. I know. We're going to like manifest the dreams together. We are. Um, So yeah, thank you so much. It's been so fun to have you on. Um, And I'm really glad that um, we got here in the end. And maybe I'll see you like in Europe somewhere at some point. Probably will, depending when you're, you know, headed abroad, like we might overlap, which would be really exciting. (laughs) That would be really cool. Yeah. Um, Well, yeah, Aaron, thank you so much for coming on. Um, Did you want to like shoot me over anything, like any of your resources or anything? So that's it. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to find out more about what I do or read more on endometriosis and living well with it, um, you can head to my Instagram page, which is this underscore endolife. Um, you can head to my website, which is www.thisendolife.com. And you can also get um, a free guide to managing endometriosis naturally on my website. Um, I've put the link in my show notes. It's a beginner's guide to getting started and all of the areas that I um, have worked on to help reduce my endometriosis symptoms and pain and live well with endometriosis. As always, if you like this show, please rate, review and or subscribe. It really, truly does help others to hear the podcast and hopefully will help them to live better with endometriosis. This episode was produced by The Pod Farm. Whether you're an established podcaster or just getting started, visit thepodfarm.com to see how they can help you go from an idea to a finished show that's ready to be heard by the world.